Our friends from Healthy Bud just launched a new exciting product and our dog Zippo has been absolutely obsessed. Their mini training treats are packed with superfoods like lion's mane, reishi, and salmon oil to support brain health and with over 500 treats per bag and just one calorie per treat, you can rest assured that you're providing guilt-free taste and nutrition in every bite. To grab a bag yourself or a few, head over to us.healthybud.co and use our code FP20 to save 20% on your first order. As you know, this is where we have conversations about the most commonly requested dog training and dog behavioral issues. It's been a long time. Uh, we've had our last podcast in February, and I think that's when we talked to Eric and Gonzalez about mindset changes. And, you know, we've had a couple of interesting months. We moved into a new home, and so we've been really busy bees during the uh, spring and summer to get that ready. And we're just so excited to get back on the air. Yeah, so we can call this our season two of podcast episodes because we'll be bringing some really interesting topics and guests during this time. I'm really interested in the topic that we are discussing today. The topic today is anxiety and anxiety in dogs. Anxiety seems to be a word that us humans know pretty well in terms of anxiety in people, anxiety disorders, whether it's social media, the news cycle, everything. It seems to be something that a lot of people are dealing with, including our dogs. Yep. Anxieties, unfortunately, are quite prevalent right now. And even the other day when we were having a puppy socialization class and we asked people to share one issue that they would like to discuss during the class it was strangely weird to have every single person tell us that they're having some sort of separation related issues or anxieties even though with puppies obviously there is a lot more stress when it comes to learning how to be alone I wouldn't call it anxiety per se but it was interesting how all the parents there were really perceiving their pups as anxious in that one context. I mean, what's what's really interesting to me is the difference between fear and anxiety, right? It seems that those two words are interlinked pretty often. And so, you know, I'm not really asking for a dictionary definition, but from your experience, how do you know, like if a uh, dog parent comes to you and says, my dog is fearful, and you go there and you might discover that dog is anxious or vice versa. So what are kind of some of the things that you see when you visit a dog for the first time that gives you at least an indication, hey, this dog seems to be anxious? Okay. <laughs> so there were a couple questions there, but we'll <laughs> need to unpack them. So one was fear versus anxiety. Yep. And how do we know that a dog is anxious? 
Yeah, just what is the difference between the two? Because some people seem to not confuse the two, but interlink the two at least. I would say that they can definitely be interlinked. For me personally, working with fear can be, depending on the case, but it can be easier to work with because we can pinpoint what the trigger is or the trigger inducing event is and that allows us to then craft a training plan that will involve careful um, exposures to that trigger or triggering situation together with um, changing how the dog feels towards their triggers as well as first teaching without the the trigger, but then incorporating some basic skills that we can use in order to give the dog a skill that that can perform in that same situation. So when it comes to uh, fear-related issues, the easier part of it is that the dog may not necessarily be fearful the rest of the time, and their fear is strictly related to a certain trigger that allows us then for us to pinpoint and work through it Mm -hmm. all right so let's talk about anxiety then so fear seems to be something that is identifiable something that maybe they have a history with reacting to so uh, how is anxiety kind of different in in this case yeah um, when it comes to anxiety we see that the causes may be a little bit wider or if we even take a step back if fear is related to a certain stimuli and then you get a fearful response anxiety is the anticipation of something scary um, or dangerous happening but without having the guarantee that this it might not happen happen. exactly Mm -hmm. so that we are kind of in that state where we are anticipating we're scanning we're on guard we're stressed but there may or may not be a trigger in the environment Mm -hmm. so a lot of the the cases that i work with we see hypervigilance, inability to focus, um, stress behaviors, excessive pulling, um, lowered body, uh, panting, um, lip licking, yawning, and inability to perform basic stuff or basic skills that the dog can do in other environments. So when when I see those, I can tell that the dog is really anticipating something bad or looking for something bad or negative or whatever Mm -hmm. the dog's perception of what is getting them to be in this state is and i can tell that this dog is a lot more anxious than fearful due to a certain stimuli do you believe that anxiety in dogs is something that they're born with something that is a result of some traumatic life experience, maybe a mix of both. If you had to kind of make a guess, what would your guess be? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's both nature and nurture, but nurture in the opposite because for some dogs, yeah, they may have a more genetic predisposition coming from previous lines of more anxious dogs or uh, the, the situation that the parents 
were at like puppy meal dogs can be an example there mm -hmm. um, and that can definitely be a factor and a cause for a more anxious predisposition in dogs as well as traumatic experiences that can cause a dog to be um, anxious because of those experiences the feeling of lack of safety and security in the environment that is causing them to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Let me introduce our guest today. And before I do the full bio, our guest today is Dr. Chris Ponkel. And I'd just love to get a, a sense of how you learned about uh, Dr. Chris Ponkel. Uh, how did you come upon his work and you know why we're so excited to talk to him today? Yep, I am definitely a fan of his work. I've known about him for quite some time. He obviously does a really amazing job of being a spokesperson for the methods that he's using and also providing a, a wide variety of topics. For example, um, relaxation. I've taken a class when it comes to teaming up with uh, veterinarians and other professionals when it comes to working with cases, kind of thinking about that idea of cooperating together. So whenever I hear him, whether that's um, a lesson that I'm taking or he's being a speaker at a conference or a podcast episode or an article that I'm reading, I just really can relate to the information that he's presenting and have definitely learned so much from him when it comes to the uh, relaxation protocols when he has I I took the class and then the next day I was able to already start incorporating those skills in my work with my client and when you hit those they can be so invaluable to take one lesson and for it to be so helpful and beneficial that I'm right away able to teach those skills to the clients that I work with. So yeah, that's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, and I also was taking the Aggression in Docs course and he does have a, a lesson in there too, which is um, how I know about him as well, together with uh, Kim Brophy, who has been a guest on our podcast too. So let me introduce our guest. Our guest is Dr. Chris Pockel, have you heard? And he is a board certified veterinary behaviorist and is the owner and lead clinician at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Pockel lectures extensively, both domestically and internationally, teaches courses at multiple veterinary schools in the United States, and has authored numerous articles and book chapters for veterinarians and pet owners. He's a sought after expert witness for legal cases and serves on the editorial advisory board for DVM 360. He is also a vice president of veterinary behavior for Instinct Dog Behavior and Training, as well as co-owner of Instinct Portland, which opened in the fall of 2020. So without further ado. Introducing Dr. Chris Pockel. So welcome to the Family Pups podcast. <laughs> so great. So. Just want to start off with this. I think most people uh, know what a veterinarian does. Uh, you, you know, if your dog gets sick, you take them to the veterinarian. Most people know what dog trainers are. If they have some behavioral issue, let's call up the local dog trainer, whoever they are, and, and figure out how to uh, work through those. But you're a veterinary behaviorist, and I think people understand what those words are. But 
you know, what is a uh, veterinary behaviorist in your opinion? And most importantly, how do clients come to you? Is it by referral or do they come directly or some other way? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Anne, and thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to get the opportunity to connect with, with hosts and audiences and just, gosh, engage these conversations and just welcome everybody into this community of, of conversation and couldn't be happier to be here today. So number one, thank you. Thank you. Uh, number two, I'll answer sort of the second part of your question first, because I think that's um, that'll lead us right back into why someone might reach out to me even before we even after we get to sort of how they got to me. I, I will say that, gosh, we, we get referrals and self-referrals and Google searches and all sorts of, of different avenues where people are able to find us. Uh, and I say us because it, at the Animal Behavior Clinic here in Portland, it's not only me as a board certified veterinary behaviorist, but I've got one other boarded behaviorist with me and then two other clinicians also seeing behavior cases, one of whom is a resident studying to be a boarded behaviorist, and the other is a general practitioner who brings uh, just an entire career's worth of experience into her consultations as well. So we have clients finding us from, gosh, you know, all, all different all different avenues. And so for me, then, the question is, why are they finding us and why are we potentially the sure. right resource for those individuals to come back to that first part of the question there? Uh, you know, and I, and I think you, you framed it beautifully saying, yeah, we get veterinary, we get behavior, but when you put the two together, what does that overlap really look like? Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I think it's, it's without being sort of uh, without trying to stratify this and saying, oh, well, gosh, the veterinary behaviorist is the end all be all of all the things, which is not always the case. Right. But the, the unique position of the veterinary behaviorist is because we have extensive training as veterinarians, first and foremost, and we have extensive training in the behavior and training world. And this is the cool piece extensive training about the overlap and the integration of those two things. Mm -hmm. And so I often think about my role as someone who really needs to understand all of the elements, meaning I need to understand the role of the pet parent. I need to understand the role of the veterinarian. I need to understand the role of the trainer or the behavior consultant who may be the one sort of boots on the ground coaching that that pet parent through all of the implementation of of training and behavior modification exercises and i have to be able to sort of pivot and switch gears based on the case in front of me either to go down that pathway of ooh i think this is actually more of a medical issue that's showing up as behavioral change mm -hmm. or i actually think this is coming from a place of behavior change but for whatever reason the strategies that have been implemented so far just aren't aren't yielding the results we're looking for. So mm -hmm. I think my skill set requires me to, to, to pivot depending on what I see in front of me and being able to ideally move relatively fluidly between each of those roles and then pull them together mm -hmm. and help those in the other roles to really understand how that fits for this particular animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wanted to share a couple of key studies and just outline what I experience when I reach the point where it's like, okay, we need to talk to our veterinarian or we need to reach out to a veterinary behaviorist just because um, 
the, the fact that if we wanted to make additional progress on these cases, we will need the extra support. So for example, we can have a dog whose name is Charlie and she's very overwhelmed and stressed by the environment. She's constantly hypervigilant, constantly scanning the surroundings. She's unable to focus and perform basic skills that she knows how to do in other environments or without distractions. She moves away uh, from the handler, so she physically kind of turns around, uh, avoids gaze, avoids, you know, being engaged in training during those times, ignores food quite often, especially when actively, let's say we stop and we actively try to engage her in a few quick repetitions of something that is simple, uh, pulls heart forward when on the leash because she just, you know, just kind of that idea of overwhelm is already on anti-anxiety medication too at the highest dose that she can take. And then another case, which this dog has pretty much the same characteristics or issues as the dog above, but for, for this dog, the issue is that not only is he so stressed outside, but there is this constant pulling back towards the building. So it's difficult to get him out to go potty or to do any type of workout because this dog probably morning times he can do a walk and then after that the rest of the day he just needs to pull back <laughs> and this dog tried anti-anxiety medications for five days but that resulted in him not eating at all and then um, you know he was taken off the medication so I guess with that my those are two cases that for me it's like it, unless we're able to bring this dog down below threshold where we can work with the dog i really <laughs> don't know what what i can do unless taking it super slow but which is not going to make my clients happy because it's going to take so much longer and then there is no guarantee there is never a guarantee but still the process is just going to be so slow so i guess one question here is that how common is it to try a few anti-anxiety medications until we find a one that works for the dog? And the second part is, what do you tell people when they feel discouraged due to the lack of behavior change or progress that they're seeing after incorporating behavior meds? Uh, those are great questions. And I, you know, my, my heart goes out first and foremost to those first two dogs that you described, right? They're, you know, the, the first thing I think is, oh gosh, they're, they're struggling. Yeah, right? they're struggling. And, you know, it, and most of the time when I'm working with pet parents who are, who are presenting a dog like the, the two that you just described, you know, it's not that they're not trying, meaning mm -hmm. it's not like they're just going, oh, my dog is stressed. My dog isn't listening. Mm -hmm. Throw some meds at that. It's like, no, no, no. We have pet parents who are actively going through training. They're trying to teach. And we have an animal who shows that impact of fear, anxiety, or stress, or arousal such that, you know, gosh, I often think about dogs like this, and this will be relevant when we get back to the, 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 the actual questions you asked here, is that when we, when we have this sort of teeter-totter of sort of thinking versus emotion, and it, obviously the brain is a lot more complicated than just breaking it down as a teeter-totter. Sure. But there is that sort of, there's the thinking part where a dog is able to go, okay, if I sit and look at my handler, I can earn a cookie, just as a really simple example. And they've learned that, they've mastered that, they have fluency of understanding. And then 
as they start to get more and more stressed or worried or defensive or whatever label we put on it, those sorts of learned behaviors kind of either start to fall apart Mm -hmm. or it's almost like we've slammed the lid shut on that toolbox that exists for that animal. Because in that moment, all of that learning is essentially overridden by the perception of danger or the lack of safety. And so now I have an animal who is worried, panicked, vigilant, you know, something along those lines. And even though they, quote unquote, know what to do, nope, doesn't really matter so much in that moment. And I see those patterns, you know, and showing up in a slightly different way for both of those dogs that you just mentioned. And so as we're saying, well, gosh, of course we can go through a process of desensitization and counter conditioning and, you know, break down those triggers for that animal into small incremental steps. Of course we can. And in some cases, the animal still continues to struggle. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I would argue that we have an ongoing welfare concern for that animal's sense of well-being, especially if those particular triggers are not avoidable. And we have to keep putting that animal into those stressful situations. And so in those cases, I look at that not necessarily to say that the animal needs medication support, but there's an opportunity there to potentially, I'm stressing that word potentially, right? Because we never know exactly how an animal is going to respond to a particular medication, until we trial it, just like you shared in that example where that second dog was put on medication, it caused a significant reduction in appetite, and they said, nope, not for me, not for my dog, and now we're sort of stuck. We still have a dog who's really, really stressed and potentially could benefit from meds, but we've got some reluctance or some hesitation to go back down that pathway again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those patterns are so incredibly common for us in the behavior clinic because the vast majority of the patients who do come to see us have been put on one or two or three (laughs) or four different medications. And for whatever reason, it's just not working. Mm -hmm. And if you're the pet parent in that role, number one, getting frustrated, number two, spending money, number three, still continuing to see your animal in distress. Sure. That's a a lot of reasons why you may be reluctant to go back down that pathway to trust the process to go, maybe this time will be different. Right. When your brain is saying, "Mm, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so I I think about all of those things in the background and, you know, and then letting my clients know that it actually is relatively common to have to trial multiple medications or multiple medication types. And the reason for that is that even if we're looking at this on a real high level for just a second, we know that we have certain medications that work best on a situational basis Hmm. where we give that medication maybe 60 to 90 minutes prior to that stressful event, perhaps going to the veterinary clinic or going for a car ride. And so we know that those medications can work very, very well in that situational moment, but those meds don't last particularly long. Right. So if we've got an animal, especially like the first one you described, who is hypervigilant, essentially 24 hours a day, that first medication might give us some initial benefits, but it's probably not going to hit the nail on the head Mm -hmm. for giving that dog 24-7 benefits from here on in. 
And so we think about those situational meds as well as the maintenance medications, those ones that may be more like the antidepressant type medications that are going to give us more of a lasting effect, but they often take three or four or six weeks to really exert their effect. And so in the meantime, we may still have an animal who's struggling. So in some cases, then it may be a matter of, uh, of a practitioner who reached for perhaps the, the wrong category of medication, or maybe it was even the right choice, but the neurotransmitter that they chose to target just didn't quite exactly nail it for that particular animal. Mm -hmm. And so we may need to trial perhaps maybe a dose change, higher or lower. In some cases, we may want to stick with the same category of medications, but make a little bit of a shift to a slightly different version of that medication. Mm -hmm. And in other cases, we say kind of like the second dog, nope, we're not going to go back down that exact same pathway again because eating is really super important for your daily well-being. So let's try something sure. completely different entirely. And so what I like to tell my clients, especially if I'm asking them to trust the process, is to say, I know that it can sometimes feel very much like we're sort of just going, oh, you've got a dog with anxiety. Here's your medication. There's so much more happening in the background in terms of understanding what's going on and that feedback that they're able to provide about what they're observing on what timeline and how that dog responds to dosing changes, that is data that is worth its weight in gold as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned, because that's what's actually telling me what's going on inside the brain and the body of that particular animal. And if I need to make a change, that's the data that I'm going to be basing that on more so even than some of those baseline data points that had us going down the medication pathway to begin with. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about timeline then. Uh, a lot of dog parents, suffering is about expectations, right? And so if they come in and you're trying to convince them, stay on this protocol, trust me, I have this much experience, I'm sure a lot of those talks happen. So from your experience, how long would you say the median anxiety case takes with trial of good and bad medicine, great vets, great behaviors, great uh, family, all kind of incorporated and working as one. What do you say? It's like, hey, give this at least this amount of time and we'll see where we are from there. What do you say in those cases? Yeah, it, it, it really it really depends. As everybody <laughs> working in behavior knows, right? Sure. It depends. <laughs> yeah. I'm borrowing the words of a colleague who now says, it depends on these variables, yeah, right? So it, yeah. it depends. If we're going down that pathway of short acting or situational meds, I usually know within one to three days whether we're going down the right pathway or not. So I'm not going to sit on those meds. You know, if we're not getting the results that we're looking for relatively quickly, I'm going to want to make a change almost immediately to try something different. Mm versus if I've gone down the antidepressant pathway and I'm starting something like fluoxetine, for example, or the generic of Prozac on the human side of, of prescribing, you know, unless I'm seeing some really significant side effects like that appetite loss that you described in the case that you mentioned, I may not know if I'm on the right pathway until we're four to six weeks into treatment. Mm. And so it's really hard to predict exactly what that timeline is going to look like. With that being said, 
it's really, really uncommon and maybe even rare in my experience for us to be reaching for medication without there being some other interventions, mm. whether that be environmental management or whether that's behavior modification strategies that maybe are a bit differently nuanced from what they were doing previously. So we're not just, as, as I think sometimes is, is sort of the, the, the picture sort of shows up that we're just going to kind of sit back and wait for meds to do their job. And the answer is no. In the meantime, how are we continuing to teach? How are we continuing to see how that animal is responding to their environments? How are we continuing to learn how that animal is signaling with their body language to let us know where they are fully comfortable, where they're a little apprehensive, and where they are fully over threshold? Mm -hmm. And that's often a place where, especially if, if pet owners are new to this process, they often need a lot of coaching because this is a language they may not have had any reason to learn of in course. the past. So the timeline is going to vary a lot. With that being said, I would say that for a lot of the cases that we that we navigate, um, I would say there are some really, really fast responders where we may make immediate differences in the first couple of weeks. But on average, I would say we're typically going down maybe a three to six month pathway when we're dealing with chronic issues. Mm -hmm. But again, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, sure. but it's rarely overnight. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I'm sure this is a question you get quite often. Uh, and it's a question that we always think about because fear and anxiety just seem to be interlinked. Anxiety seems to be, is it just latent fear? I have so many questions in regards to that. So if a dog parent is coming to you, hey, this is my dog. I think he's fearful, but he might be anxious. What are some things you kind of on the lookout for to be like, hey, this is, this is indicating to me that your dog is anxious or definitely fearful about something. What are some of the things that you might say in those circumstances? Uh, it's a great question. And this is actually one of my, my favorite topics to dive into. And we're really trying to kind of thin slice some of these cases and trying to say, well, not only what's going on for that animal, but how do we help them? Sure. I think it's really important to be able to tease this out. And I think one of the reasons why we often lump them together is when we're talking about fear and anxiety and stress, we're often seeing these emotional responses that we would consider to be negative, right? There's a level of stress a level of distress maybe even in certain cases, and we label it then with fear or anxiety. And when we're <laughs> dealing with fear, the important thing for, for me to remember and to convey is that fear is typically described as a negative emotional state that's in direct response to a particular trigger or stimulus. Mm. And so this is important, right? Where we may have an animal that shows stress by putting their ears back or we may see dilated pupils or wide eyes or tucking the head or tucking the tail you know we can see signs of stress but then i'm looking at that animal to say well where not where did that come from internally but was that in a direct response to let's say we were walking down the street going for a walk life is good and that dog heard a door slam mm. And we have a very specific response to a stimulus response. And then we see that body language and the emotional state of that animal changing. Yep. So in those cases, I can say, okay, the behavior that I'm observing is directly tied to some change in those antecedents or the conditions 
that are happening around there. So I've got this stimulus response connection. And then I'm going to look for that and say, okay, well, that door slammed. You showed an emotional reaction after a couple, three, five, ten seconds without any additional door slams. Does it go away on its own? Mm. In which case we're saying, yep, you heard or you saw or you felt something that triggered that reaction. But then as soon as that stimulus goes away, we can start that recovery process. The more I'm seeing that, the more likely I am to be talking about fear-based issues Mm -hmm. versus anxiety is often described more as an apprehensive anticipation of threat. In humans or individuals who can describe their emotional state, we often use the term worry because there's sort of this perpetual thinking, the kind of the the what-if scenario. And so I can't necessarily ask the dog in front of me what's going through their head. But by the same token, when I see this often persistent level of behavior change or body language change, and I can't quite pinpoint exactly where it comes from or why it goes away. So it's often free floating without that direct connection to antecedent changes. And then we often see other signs Uh, Thinking back to the first dog that you mentioned today, that hypervigilant, always looking over the shoulder, easily started, um, may really struggle to settle back to a resting baseline level of comfort. You know, we may just see this persistent change again without there being a direct connection to what's happening around them. That dog is more likely to be described as anxious. Mm -hmm. And the reason those things matter, not only in terms of understanding the animal in front of you, but as we're reaching for our training exercises, is that if I'm talking about dog number one over here, the dog that's more fearful because of the door slam, then I have the opportunity to do some counter conditioning. And I might start out with a really soft door slam, just enough that it gets the dog's attention Not so much that it triggers that negative emotional state, but I can create that stimulus and then pair it with something that is enjoyable or typically positive for that particular animal. Mm -hmm. So this might be the noise, food, noise, food, noise, food, noise, food, noise, food, noise, food, (laughs) until I get an animal who hears that noise is going, feed me. Yeah. I know what comes next, right? And then we can start to increase the intensity and move our way up that, what we refer to as the stimulus gradient. So that works great when we've got a discrete response to an individual trigger. On the other hand, if we're talking about dog number two, where there isn't a direct trigger that's present, I can do all of that training. But if the issue for that animal is that they're constantly asking the what if question, Mm -hmm. it's not so much when this happens, I have an emotional response. It's I don't predict, I can't predict, I don't know when or if that trigger is going to happen. I don't feel that I have any control or agency about how to control either me in my environment or my exposure to that particular trigger. And so what we're dealing with there is, is... not only some of the emotional response to the individual trigger, but also thinking about predictability and control. Mm -hmm. Not control going down sort of the dominance whatever pathway. We don't need to go there to understand anxiety. It's more about control saying, do I have some sense of ability to, well, control what's happening around me? And do I then start to feel a bit more at peace 
that I this world is less predictable. I'm less susceptible to the stressors around me. And so if I'm dealing with a dog that's more on the fear end of the spectrum, I'm going to be doing more of those discrete exercises. Mm -hmm. If I'm more on the anxiety end of the spectrum, I'm going to be working through exercises that allow that animal to experience a greater degree of predictability, structure, and control. And when I'm dealing with animals that have both patterns, mm -hmm. then I'm doing both types of exercises versus expecting one or the other to make the biggest difference. So, so just going back to predictability, control, and let's say consistency, I could understand in my mind, trigger, reward, trigger, reward. That was very clear on the fear end. What are some of the exercises that you're doing that either helps them feel like their life is more predictable on their end, or you provide a certain predictability to them? What are some of those exercises that you might do or that you might recommend? Uh, great question. So the couple of things, it can be as simple as rather than going out for a walk and marching through the environment no matter what, it may be as simple as putting that dog on a slightly longer leash that allows them, assuming that that's safe to do in that particular environment, but a slightly longer leash that allows them just a bit more control, mm -hmm. a bit more choice. Do I want to sniff this branch? Do I want to sniff this blade of grass? Do I want to pause for a second because I'm starting to get a little bit overwhelmed? Can I slow everything down? Maybe even engaging in sniffing in a way, in a way that starts to get some of the thinking parts of my brain back online. Mm -hmm. And so I'm giving a little bit more of that agency to the animal following their lead a bit more so than what we might typically do if we're going out for an exercise walk where the animal is in heel position and they're expected to march and essentially ignore all of those stimuli around them. Mm -hmm. That's often a great place to start for a lot of our own, uh, a lot of our owners as well as for a lot of our dogs to be able to get them that little bit of a sense of control over what happens around them. I'm also a huge, huge proponent of various types of relaxation work, not just the things that come from massage, for example, where we're able to create a low stress, low arousal period of time, but actually teaching that animal how to settle into a resting position while staying attentive to what's happening around them. So then I can start to layer in some of these mild stressors around them while giving that animal permission to opt out of the training. Meaning if I've asked that animal to settle into a relaxed down on a station or a mat or some sort of portable relaxation spot and that animal's stress level starts to climb and they get up and they get out of the relaxation posture as their human, as their advocate, I'm not saying no get back on the mat, I'm saying, I hear you. Mm -hmm. That was a bit intense. Let's see if we can take a break, recover, and try again. Mm -hmm. And so what I find in starting to engage that conversation with my canine learners is they start to figure out that it's not just that the world is overwhelming, but they actually have the ability to communicate with the individuals around them. Sure. They can opt out if it's too much, and they can opt back in. Mm when they're really starting to understand. And that's the beautiful thing. And I think for those of us, including me, who started out in the behavior world, perhaps thinking about things a bit more traditionally, 
sometimes it feels like, well, gosh, if I give this dog the opportunity to opt out every time they're a little bit uncomfortable, we're never going to make progress. <laughs> you know, and yeah. oftentimes, the, at least in my experience, the opposite happens when we're dealing with anxiety. As soon as the animal feels like they have the ability to opt out when it's too much and they understand that they can opt back in mm. with that choice we often dramatically increase the pace at which we're working. Mm. But there's some little nuances there that really have to be paid attention to if we're going to see those responses. And that's where certified trainers and behavior consultants really come into play mm. to be able to provide pet parents those solutions and those observations and those exercises to really walk them through it. Love that. I have a question because I know that a lot of our listeners may be wondering, for example, if you're starting to teach a dog on a settle down where let's say they go on one hip and they're staying in position, um, how do you deliver the food in a way that doesn't encourage the dog to continuously look, the, look at you and explain? expect the next piece of food that's coming up <laughs> there's a nod right. of recognition there <laughs> do we see that sometimes i don't know i don't know <laughs> everybody who's ever done it was a border collie is like nodding in agreement like yes those those herding breeds they can work harder than anybody so no, no, it's absolutely the you know a, a good question to ask and i find that you know, there's a couple of different ways that we can get around that or work through it. In some cases, we can decrease the reward value. So rather than using that high value, stinky, um, you know, thing that is just, um, you know, a, a million dollars for that particular animal, can we drop the value so it's still reinforcing and rewarding and enjoyable, but not quite so stimulating? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that works. Um, I also find that one of the perhaps most the most easy thing to do is when I have that animal who, who is in that position that you described, sort of laying down with a hip to the side, is that rather than delivering the food directly to the animal's mouth, I will often deliver that food to the ground or the floor right next to their elbow. Mm. And that's really important for me. It's not only about the ground, but it's not, and, and it's not just like, let's say, putting that directly in front of them. But when we think about animals who are, are starting to relax and they're starting to soften, we often see more C shapes within the body where we often see more of a spine curve either to the right or left versus being really straight and rigid and tight. And so if I'm able, especially if I'm working with a dog who is looking directly at me, and if I'm able to continue grounding them down to the floor rather than up to me, and if I'm able to reinforce them by continuing to exaggerate that C curve within the body, oftentimes I'm encouraging them to move a little bit, which is often helpful for some of our busy-bodied dogs. And I'm encouraging that, that bend or that curve to the spine, which often starts to release some tension in its own right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start out with those things first to be able to say, hey, can we shift that animal without making a bunch of other changes? Or do we want to try to set ourselves up for even greater success? Meaning maybe we only practice the relaxation efforts at first 
after we've been out for a vigorous walk or a ball session where mm-hmm. that dog is more likely to kind of want to just take a load off and not be quite so fidgety or on versus trying to practice it for maybe first thing in the morning or after a pet parent has been away at work for four hours or six hours mm-hmm. and, and the dog is ready to do more rather than settle. So those are some of the things that we start with. There are others, but those are some of the ones for, for folks who are listening that may help them to, to kind of take the next leap forward. And we'll be back right after this break. Are you looking for exceptional veterinary care for your cat or dog? Goodheart Animal Health Center is here for all your pet's needs. Their happy, helpful team provides full-service care for all stages of your pet's life. They have separate areas for dogs and cats, helping to create low-stress checkups for pets and their people. Every new client receives a free pet name tag and bottle of wine as a thank you for giving them a try. Goodheart has two locations in Denver, at Broadway and Alameda, and now open in Cherry Creek. For more information, visit goodheart.vet. Now back to the episode. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I have a nature versus nurture question. Um, and let me phrase it like this. If all the humans in the world just overnight were suddenly really, really great to every dog in the world, would anxiety in dogs still exist? What is your take there? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's a great question, right? Yeah, nature versus nurture. We've actually rephrased that a little bit with one of the businesses that I'm a co-owner of here in the, in the U.S., uh, Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. We've recently launched a course that's called Nature Driven Nurture. Mm. Rather than getting into the either or, it's really more about saying, how does the world around you shape who you are? Sure. And how can we channel that as a way of helping you learn and helping you move forward. So, you know, this is this is right on point for the direction that I think a lot of our, our, our understanding is going. And, you know, I think the first thing that I always try to remember is that fear and anxiety are inherently normal characteristics. Mm-hmm. I think both as humans and as animal trainers, I think sometimes we really uh, we pathologize or we, we go down that pathway of saying, gosh, anytime we see fear and anxiety, clearly there's something wrong. The animal's brain is broken. They're, you know, they're wired wrong or whatever label we put on that. And at a fundamental level, fear and anxiety is what keeps us safe, either in situations where we've, we've experienced a negative outcome or in circumstances that are perhaps just unknown to us. And that anxiety that exists in a situation where we don't know what's coming next actually keys up our emotional centers in our body and in our brain so that if something bad does happen, we're ready for it. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I would argue that even if we perfected all of the human behavior in the world, if you figure out how to do that, you let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Even if we've done that, I'm going to say, yeah, dogs being dogs, cats being cats, parrots being parrots, horses being horses will continue to experience at least a basic level of those emotional states because they're normal. Sure. I think the place that we would be able to really make a difference is that I do think sometimes, especially as humans, at least in, in my own personal experience, sometimes I get a bit sort of caught in my own agenda Mm-hmm. And I'm putting my agenda on top of the animal that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. 
and I may be putting them in situations that are not meeting their needs, or I'm not giving them feedback that's consistent or predictable, and so we exacerbate some of those normal patterns. And there may also be issues, and this is where we get a little bit more into the, the harder to nail down piece, we know that not every dog is exactly the same as the next one. And so there are individual genetic or developmental influences mm -hmm. on how that brain and body connection really develops that suggests that we do have some dogs who are more susceptible to some of those influences. So sometimes when I have parents who say, you know, pet parents who are saying, gosh, you know, I've had seven dogs and I've never had this issue. I hear you. I, I really do hear you. And perhaps the difference is you had seven other dogs and now you have this one. Yeah. Like children. Let, let's see what we can do. Exactly right. It's just like with kids and with humans and everything else. There's that individual variability. And I think as we as we start to recognize more and more of what that looks like versus saying, no, 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 I'm the alpha. I'm the master. Therefore, you should do what I say no matter what. Sure. As we shift away from that, perhaps far, far, far away from that, depending on where we're at in our journey, I think that we start to recognize more about what the animals bring to these situations. Mm -hmm. And we, we really gain the opportunity to learn from them as much as hopefully they're learning from us. Mm -hmm. um, I know this, this is not a question I think I would just give to anyone, but I think you're a tremendously thoughtful person. And so you've been studying anxiety and anxiety can be argued is the biggest malady that it that affects humans today i mean it could be argued right uh, for a number of reasons and so yeah. based on your research your i mean you work obviously with dogs and parents are there certain insights you've gleaned in whether your own life or other people experiencing anxiety like what are certain nuggets where like wow that really that really transferred over really quite nicely and that really helped in my personal life whether who knows whether you incorporate predictability, control, and consistency when you're brushing your teeth. Who knows? I'm just saying those thoughts must have crossed your mind. Those, uh, those thoughts must have entered into a dinner chat with your friends and colleagues. Can you share yeah. some of that? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, and, and, it, and it's tricky, right? Because when we when we start sort of shifting species, the first little caveat that I'll put on here, which you've already prefaced beautifully, thank you, is saying that my credentials are in the veterinary space. My credentials are in the veterinary behavior space. And that includes the study of animal behavior across species lines, right? So there there is a lot of education that goes goes into that certification. And I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, a human medical practitioner. And so this all comes more from the standpoint of kind of understanding how to people, yep. <laughs> if that was a one way of putting it, just how, <laughs> how to show up. And, and, and at least speaking personally, I think the, the, the majority of the time where I have experienced a level of anxiety in, in my world, both personally and professionally, when I'm able to create enough distance and enough space and enough time to really sit with it, knowing that in the moment, it's often the hardest thing to do, right? Because our brains are going in that same teeter-totter that I was describing for the dogs uh, a few minutes ago, sure. right? The more emotionally activated we are, the harder it is to really think logically through those pathways. And again, that's normal. 
that that I think is probably the first thing to recognize is that's what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. When we're in a situation that our brain or our body perceives as out of control mm-hmm. or beyond our comfort threshold, it's supposed to activate us so that we're ready to respond to all of those dangers around us. Sure. The challenge is that there are so many things happening around us all the time that are happening outside of our predictability, that are happening outside of our control, that may resemble potentially significantly traumatic experiences in our lives. And so in some ways, we're being bombarded with stimuli and triggers and experiences that are keeping our systems activated Mm. In, in a way that is is really makes it harder for us to really gain some clarity around it. So part of this for me is 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 really trying to, to, to make sure that when we're ad- advocating for ourselves, are we taking time away to be able to even just allow our body to recover? Yep. To get back to a resting baseline level of arousal. I think that's really important. It's something we advocate for our canine learners as well. But I think it's also important to recognize that going on vacation doesn't fix the world that you left behind right right like getting back to a sort of a cortisol holiday if you will is super helpful but if we then go right back into the exact same set of scenario that was creating or contributing to all of our stress yeah it's it's gonna come right back right so to some degree i think we have to then also develop a set of coping skills that allows us to either change our emotional responses to some of those discrete triggers, like we were talking about with the fear side of things, mm-hmm. or figuring out what's actually under my control. Mm-hmm. Let me do the things that allow me to exert that appropriate level of control without steamrolling over the top of anyone else mm-hmm. in the process, mm-hmm. but advocating for my needs, even if that's literally saying, do I want to use this toothpaste? Or this toothpaste, <laughs> and recognizing that that gave me full the circle. Power I love that. <laughs> right. So we have the, we have the ability to think about those little moments versus sometimes feeling so overwhelmed that oh my gosh, there's no possible way that I could do anything mm-hmm. with any of this stress. That's often not truly the case, mm-hmm. but it takes a concerted effort to be able to do that. And something that we've learned from working with our animals down those desensitization pathways is that you have to be really mindful of what's doable. Meaning if I have an individual who is, you know, at the present point in time is overwhelmed by the world around them and I say, cool, you're going to handle all of your stressors and you're going to change your job and change your life and change your house and buy a new car and did it. No. Yeah. No, that's so far over what's probably practical in that moment for that individual. But we might get there eventually. So I often think about this in terms of edge work. Where can I just start to kind of bridge into something that's that's kind of testing my limits just a little bit? Mm -hmm. Just enough that just, again, just like we do with the dogs in front of us, that pushes them just enough that allows them to be successful across just a little bit broader set of circumstances. Let's establish some fluency, some practice there. Let's take a breath. Let's try again. Take a breath. Try again. Take a breath. Try again. And when that starts to feel fluent, awesome. Let's stretch again. Mm. Let's let's push just a little bit more. And so on the human side, I find that we are susceptible to the exact same forces that we are constantly working on with our canine learners 
to really be able to help them through it. But oh my gosh, does it get so much harder when we try to turn that lens inward? Ooh, that's a, it's a lot. So hopefully something there is, is helpful. I, I could go down that rabbit hole for a very, very long time, but it's, it's a, it's a really important piece of work for me uh, in supporting our, our, our global community. Love that. Love yeah, that. I absolutely agree. And just starting out with the idea of awareness, I think it's so important, even when it comes to me coaching clients on, let's say, saying sit just once without repeating it. When I have a client who may have said it two or three times, but then they take a step back and they're like, oh, I repeated it over and over again. I'm like, yes, because I know that once we've created that awareness within this person, then she can continue growing up on this skill Mm -hmm. and that is always yeah so beautiful to see so even though something is triggering us and we experience the emotion because we too have adrenaline and cortisol rushing through our systems that doesn't mean that we right away need to create this story and confirm everything that is going to maintain that state of fear and to share, like I before used to have a lot more of a tendency to catastrophize on things. For example, if let's say I have an interview and things don't go well, I can go in my head with these stories of how this can affect everything else. And I think that can be a big part of maintaining anxieties in people too, because they're not aware of how they're actually just creating this snowball of anxious stories that are maintaining the state they're in. And as you were saying, yeah, just taking that step back and kind of detaching from the emotions and the stories that we've created around situations can have such a big impact. And then looking at it from a fresh perspective, even if it is for thinking about changing emotions or uh, creating alternative behaviors for us too can have such a profound effect and going to your point i mean because we're higher functioning animals just like dogs are anxiety is kind of a a side effect of our ability to plan ahead right some animals can't plan ahead and anxiety is just rumination on all the what ifs but if we could ruminate on what ifs we couldn't plan to do something next year and so we want to get rid of it but what else would we lose is an interesting question yeah yeah it it is and that rumination piece it's it's one of those things where you know i think in my own life as i've as i've struggled with anxiety whether it's you know during professional changes or personal growth opportunities and and anxiety creeps in either at a normal or problematic level and i'm thinking gosh if i am causing or perpetuating some of this because of this rumination well then do i need to go all the way in the other end of the spectrum and say nope i'm going to detach from all expectations and i'm just going to wing it well (laughs) that's not necessarily the right answer either right it's (laughs) like we we have to we 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 do in most cases have to be thinking ahead a little bit whether it's for safety or life planning or whatever and so it it really is a challenge and and again i i come back to this, this whole idea of just the number of things that are changing around us on a global scale mm-hmm. that are out of our control and just how easy it is to feel overwhelmed by that process to bring it back to those tangible 
things, mm. what do I actually have control over? And even if that means breaking it down to the smallest of little increments, yep. that may allow our brains to kind of start to take that little bit of a breath to go, ooh, okay, mm. I can start to process this and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I, I think the only other thing that I'll mention here while we're talking about the human side of things is you know, I, I, I never mean within a conversation like this, I never mean to oversimplify it. And that's something that I think can, can happen very easily, especially when we recognize that people also have a wide degree of susceptibilities, mm -hmm. right? Someone who is uh, less affected by an anxiety-prone system may have an easier time accessing some of these skills and breaking these things down versus someone who has additional trauma history totally. or who mm -hmm. has additional, it's, it's going to be harder. So I don't ever mean to say, well, just take a vacation, reframe have your a Mai Tai, it'll all, <laughs> right? It'll all be fine. It'll all, nah, it, it's, it, it's not quite that simple, but there, there is an element of that that can be helpful when we keep it in balance with what is, practical and doable for the individual at that point in time. All right. Well, I feel like we could have an endless conversation about <laughs> human anxiety. So thank you for first entertaining that question and obviously uh, answering it with such depth. I, I really appreciate that. Um, but I wanted to transition toward kind of a lightning round. Um, so uh, it, it relieves you of having to say an exhaustive answer, but we reached out on Instagram Tell us about your anxious dog. What is your anxious dog going? And what are some of the questions that you have for our guest? And let's just say a minute per question. If you can. Or two. Or, or two. <laughs> or two and a half. <laughs> um, and so here's the first question from Becky Duffy. We are trying to use positive reinforcement at groomers or during thunderstorms. Sometimes her whole body shakes and she won't take the treat. How can we be sure we aren't causing more harm than good? Great question. I'm glad this came up. So it, that is one of the concerns, right? If we're, if we're potentially, quote unquote, rewarding the fear, or that's the worry that we have in that moment, it's a valid concern. The thing to remember is that if we are seeing an animal who is in emotional distress, and that shows up by peaking, pacing, panting, shaking, drooling, clawing, jumping, whatever that happens to be, bottom line, do the best you can to help the animal. And for me, that's a really important detail. And that's what it sounds like you're trying to do by going down that pathway of reinforcement and trying to pair those experiences with something that's enjoyable for that animal. Keep in mind that if we have an animal who's experiencing fear or anxiety and we give them food, we are not going to make the fear or anxiety worse. Mm. It just doesn't work that way. So there's a, there's a little sigh of relief within that answer there. With that being said, it also sounds like you're trying to go down that pathway, but not really seeing much in the way of improvements. Mm. And my suspicion, I don't know enough here to really dive into a deep answer, you're lucky, uh, <laughs> is that I, I suspect you're, you're potentially trying to pair that experience with something that's reinforcing, but the experience itself is too intense for your animal to truly make that association. They're potentially more in survival mode than they are in learning mode. Mm. So I would say if there's a way to help them get a bit more comfortable 
whether that is uh, starting out with easier grooming episodes, which might even be just going to the groomer and hopping up on the table, you know, licking something delicious off the table and then we go home again. Is it possible to start seeing that shift by breaking it down and making it mm-hmm. easier? And then you're going to start seeing that momentum within your training. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple of thoughts to keep in mind based on what you asked about. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Here's question number two from Rebecca Pratt. Uh, our dog seems to be getting more and more anxious in the car, panting, trying to climb up front with us, etc. Any theories on why? So it seems to suggest that this dog was better and then now there's incremental worsening of that behavior yeah it's a great question actually a really common scenario rebecca so i'm glad that you asked about this specific to the car there are a couple of things to keep in mind number one if there's any evidence of nausea or gastrointestinal upset that may be eliciting more of a almost a motion sickness element Keeping in mind that we don't always see drooling or vomiting, but the animal may still be experiencing a certain level of nausea, it may be worth asking your veterinary team about to see whether a trial of an anti-nausea medication might be helpful to try to rule that in or, or rule it out. So that's number one. The next one that I think about with cars in particular is orthopedic or neurologic pain or discomfort. That if we have an animal who's bouncing around in the car as we're jostling down the highway, if that is an environment that's causing them physical discomfort, they can absolutely sensitize and start to associate that with the car ride itself. Mm-hmm. So similar idea, having your your animal checked out by a veterinary team to say, do we think that there's a level of pain or discomfort here? Uh, yes or no, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe we try a pain medication trial to see if that helps. And then I'm also thinking about an animal that, you know, as you said, Charles, that as we're moving down this pathway, we have an animal who presumably used to be better and now they're getting worse. That suggests that for one reason or another, the animal is sensitizing. There's something about that experience that is probably exceeding their physical or emotional comfort level. Can we break it down and make it a little bit easier through training sessions Or even breaking it down by, for example, some of my canines do do ride better in a vehicle when they're in a crate, especially with the line of sight blocked, so a covered crate. Again, I'm not saying that fixes everything, but for some animals who may be getting overwhelmed by the world zipping by at highway speeds, it may be worth a trial Mm. to see, can I make this a bit more comfortable for you? In some cases, we may try different vehicles to see if there's something about a certain vehicle type that makes it easier or more challenging to ride. Uh, We may try driving a little faster or a little slower to see if any Mm. of those change things uh, to to really try to figure out what do we think is actually triggering that. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple of pathways to, to run down right from the start. Amazing, amazing. Uh, so we have one question from Ollie's parents. Uh, so my dog Ollie will make progress, but then suddenly depresses without warning. And it's like we're constantly starting over. He's almost four and his quote unquote stranger danger is still a major issue for us. Tips or insights on what might be happening? That's a great, great question here. And, and certainly something that taps into the human experience as well where we're making progress and then something happens and it feels like we're starting all over again. And that does happen a lot for our patients like Ollie. 
usually what happens, and there's sort of two two sides of looking at this scenario, what often happens is that from Ollie's perspective, he may have been starting to feel different about strangers in this particular case, starting to feel like strangers were a more reliable predictor of something good happening, that strangers are more trustworthy, that strangers are easier to predict. And then, lo and behold, someone accidentally did something wrong, and he may have just been getting comfortable with a stranger, and they dropped a book on the floor, and he startled, and he associated that with the stranger again, and now we're right back where we started from. Right, So we can see episodes like that that are not anybody's fault, per se, but because we have an animal who's just on the cusp of learning how to trust they're still vulnerable to some of those experiences. And so what I find is really something really helpful to think about is that as we're working with dogs who do have more chronic fear or anxiety issues, I find that as the humans who are going through that, sometimes we, and I'm I'm including myself in this we, so please know I'm not pointing any fingers at all on this one, we sometimes push faster than what our animal learners are capable of. Or we assume that because Ollie did so well yesterday, that therefore he's going to do amazingly well today too. And you know what? Maybe Ollie slept really poorly last night because he'd stubbed his toe while he was playing in the yard yesterday afternoon. So Ollie's a little cranky Mm -hmm. and Ollie's not quite showing up at his 100%. But if we put him back into the same situation he was in yesterday, we may have accidentally set him up to fail by putting him in a situation that was just too hard. So thinking about that from Ollie's perspective as he's learning how to trust and really being thoughtful about the situations that we're asking Ollie to learn through may give you a bit more of a sense of why he's succeeding in the sessions that go well and why he's experiencing those setbacks in the ones that feel like they're setting you back to the start line. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that once you really identify exactly what's making it go well or poorly, you're going to know exactly what to do, potentially with the help of a trainer or behavior consultant or veterinary behaviorist, to understand how to manipulate that, whether that's only on the training side whether that's including management as well, or whether that potentially includes medications or supplements or pain control or other elements as well. Okay. And the final question, uh, this from Holly Walker. This is in in, um, relation to noise aversion. So um, she was, it was mainly a question of, this is all that I'm doing around noise aversion. Can you tell me about my approach or maybe certain things that she might have missed? So in, for noise aversion, she does noise blocking machines. Uh, if that doesn't work, she tries to engage in play. If that doesn't work, she engages in a thunder shirt and um, colostrum complex or homeopathic for thunder. Um, and is working on counter conditioning. She works on counter conditioning. If she seeks me out for comfort, I don't ignore her, but I don't make a big deal out of anything. Uh, so I've also created a safe space that she likes to go in with a dog bed in her closet. So I think obviously she loves her dog uh, and she's willing to go the extra thousand miles for her dog. But what might she be missing? 
Yeah, it's a great, it's a it's a great scenario, and I, and I love all of the the, the wonderful the, the strategies that are in place already that are really capturing not only the avoidance piece of trying to keep that environment as comfortable as possible, but also creating some of those coping skills either through counter conditioning or through the safe space training. And and what I what I try to do when I'm working with a case like this is I say, cool, that's amazing. You've done some really phenomenal things. What I'm typically looking for next is to, to basically say, now tell me more. Mm. Which elements of those are actually working? Which of them feel like your animal is opting in for those coping, coping strategies? And where does it feel like you're kind of spinning your wheels and you're not making additional progress? And that usually tells me a little bit more about that particular canine learner. And it may be a matter of making some tweaks some of those tweaks uh, could be, for example, something that often happens for my clients who live in areas of the country or areas of the world that have frequent thunderstorms, for example. It's really hard to buffer that exposure sufficiently enough so that we can make progress through our training exercises. In other cases, those storms are very seasonal or fireworks or gunshot exposure is very seasonal. So sometimes we're only going into triage mode during the exposures and then we kind of take the rest of the year off because there's no triggers happening. And we're not necessarily, you know, setting that animal up in the off season to really build these skills through controlled exposures to really teach them about what's going on in their world and how to control that. And then in other cases, it's a matter of saying, you're doing amazing work. I think your animal is really making tremendous progress. And you may be navigating an animal that has other stuff. Right. And where we may have an animal who's more susceptible or who has other reasons why they are also sensitive to noises, which could be in some cases allergy issues or gastrointestinal upset or pain issues that are making it harder for you to make progress. Mm -hmm. So really working in tandem with your veterinary team, whether you're going down the holistic, homeopathic, herbal uh, sort of natural pathway, whether you're going with more of a Western-based practitioner looking more at pharmaceuticals, or whether you're doing a hybrid and combining all sorts of other stuff. Again, huge, huge number of things that we can do. But I think what I love about where you're starting is you're doing some really great work, and I suspect you've seen some improvements, mm -hmm. but just not getting all of what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. It may be time to work collaboratively with another professional to dig a little deeper and really dig through to see what might have been missed or overlooked. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it looks like we are just a little past time. We want to be very respectful for your time. We are so thankful uh, that you came on. We were so excited to talk to you. Um, yeah, and I feel like at least I learned so much. So much. And if our listeners wanted to um, connect with you or see if they can work with you in any capacity, what will be a good place for them to connect with you? Yeah, great, great question. And of course, I love being able to connect with folks and help them with their with their dogs, their cats, their children sometimes. No, um, so when we're, as we're working with the learners around us, there's kind of two places to look for me. One, if you go to my, my primary website, which is drpockel.com, that's D-R-P-A-C-H-E-L.com. 
on there, you basically get links to everything that I'm doing in the world, which may include podcast recordings like this on the media page. This will eventually land there as well. Uh, so it, there's a lot of resources there diving into conversations around some of the topics that we touched on here. And there's also then links if you're looking to consult with me directly for your animal or to work with a member of my team, then you can do that through the Animal Behavior Clinic here in Portland, Oregon. So that's animalbehaviorclinic.net. And if you look through that website, which you can get through, uh, get to off of drpockle.com as well, uh, take a look there and all of the information as far as how we consult, what that looks like, who needs to be involved, where does veterinary uh, support fall into that, all of those things, that's all available on the Animal Behavior Clinic's primary website. Perfect. Well, we thank you for your time and your expertise. It was incredibly beneficial to have this conversation, and I hope that our listeners feel the same way too. Yeah, and, and I hope that we can eventually have a part two with you. I feel like this conversation just went by so quickly, and I hope uh, it was an enjoyable experience for you as well. Uh, certainly, you had some really great questions and the, and the nuance that allows us to really tease that out while also making it really practical for everyone who's at home who has these questions. I think that's amazing. And oh my gosh, that lightning round was so much fun. I think we may need to do an entire second session just on those questions that are coming from listeners. So we'll see. Let's get that on the calendar. Yep. Oh, great. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Listen to the Family Pups podcast with your hosts, Tanya and Charles Lim. Subscribe to our podcast to catch our latest episodes. If you like the show, please make sure to share and review us on your favorite podcast app. And for links to anything we mentioned in the episode, check out our show notes. And don't forget to visit familypups.com slash podcast to listen to past episodes of the Family Pups podcast, including episodes on separation anxiety with Melania DeMartini-Price, Unpredictable Aggression with Michael Shikashio, Fearful Dogs with Debbie Jacobs, Puppy Socialization with Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson, and many, many more.